Welcome to Afterlives of Ancient Egypt, in which we discuss ancient history and relevant current events. I'm Kara Cooney, and I love to take deep dives into history that are not always possible in academic formats. So, let's get started. Hello, and welcome to Afterlives of Ancient Egypt. This is Amber here with Kara and Jordan. You guys Hello. say hi. Hello. So this is the first of a new type of episode we're doing called Artifact Stories. In each episode of this series, we are going to spotlight one thing, uh, art, artifact, maybe architecture, um, for some discussion and close looking. Those of you familiar with museum education probably perked up at that mention of close looking because it's a thing in museum education. Um, and close looking is a great way to sort of slow down and dive into the details of an object or a work of art and try to see what kind of insights and perspectives you can draw up. So since there is an obvious visual component to today's discussion, we'll be releasing a companion post to this episode on our substack, ancientnow.substack.com. So you can go there and see the object or photos of the object that we're talking about today. Also a list of relevant sources and um, sort of maybe a summary of the discussion that we had here and maybe uh, a few extras as well. Um, we'll just sort of see how it goes. So today what we're going to be talking about is uh, we're going to we're going to feature Khufu's um, itty bitty ivory statue, <laughs> which is uh, in the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. Uh, it's really, I guess we should call it a statuette, right? Because it's only about seven and a half centimeters high and two and a half centimeters wide. So not even really the length of like an iPhone, right? Maybe about roughly half or so. So very small, almost uh, like a large game piece, you know, kind of size. And it's sort of famous because it's known as the only surviving, mostly intact statue in the round of Khufu, who most people recognize as being the builder of the Great Pyramid at Giza, right? So fourth dynasty king um, who lived in the 2500s BCE. If you are um, interested in knowing more about him, I would refer you to Kara's book, The Good Kings, has an entire chapter on Khufu. And in fact, later on today, we're going to be talking a little bit um, about um, how Khufu ties into The Good Kings and Kara's discussion of that. So we will get to all of that. So this ivory statue of Khufu was found, or sorry, statuette, um, was actually excavated in the temple complex of Osiris Hentimentiu at Abydos in Middle Egypt by William Flinders Petrie in 1903. Now, um, before we go on, we'll just make a, a, a brief mention of Hentimentiu because that might people might recognize Osiris, but Hentimentiu is just a, a jackal-headed deity worshipped at Abydos but it's also a name used as a title for both uh, Osiris and Anubis. It means foremost of the Westerners, i.e. the dead. So uh, Kara and Jordan, you may want to pull up the photos you've got uh, of the statuette now, because um, I'm going to sort of go through a, a description of it. So those of you who are listening sort of audio only will create uh, a visual picture in your head. 
Um, and those who have the advantage of a screen or a computer nearby, uh, you can go to Substack and, uh, and pull up those photos. Some of the photos that we have uh, are contemporary, sort of modern day photos, but there are also a couple of photos from Petrie's original uh, excavation report um, and his uh, uh, documentation of the find. So if you look at the, the little statuette, you can see that Khufu is seated on a throne. He's beardless and wearing the red crown. And he's holding a flail in his right hand, which is resting on his chest. His left hand rests with an open palm on his knee. Now he's wearing a short kilt, which is pleated, but he's naked from the waist up. And the throne that he's sitting on is undecorated or mostly undecorated except for uh, his name which is inscribed on the the front of the throne and the feet and the footrest are missing and appear to have been broken away from the figure um, and actually if you look at one of the detail photographs you could sort of see there's kind of a split um, at the head of the statue and that's because it was actually knocked off during excavation so Petrie's going through the finds, right, that they're pulling in, you know, each day. And he comes across this little ivory figurine and this small headless little ivory figure. And when he reads the name on the throne and sees that it's Khufu, he realizes the significance because at the time there were no um, statue representations of, of Khufu that were known. And so he has everybody go back and sift through the debris um, from um, the site of the, the little statuette's discovery and just had everybody carefully sift until they were able to finally recover the head after what Petrie says was three weeks of incessant sifting. That's insane. I was going to say, anybody who's <laughs> ever been on an archaeological dig knows what that kind of work is like. And you, you know then how motivated Petrie must have been to put people for three precious weeks of his excavation time um, sifting through the debris, trying to find the uh, the little head to put back on this this statue. It and it's fragmented. Slide. Oh, sorry. It's fragmented. Yeah, so you it can see how in this picture you have, you can see how much it's been restored in the museum today. Yes. Yeah, for sure. So, but as I said, Petrie was very excited at this find because as he put it, uh, it was the first figure of that monarch that has come to light. Uh, and so that's also, you know, it it still is a um, a significant part uh, or part of what makes the statue significant today. Um, although there are other representations of Khufu that have uh, survived, they're maybe just not as intact, not necessarily like uh, complete statues. Um, just for a few examples, um, there were um, some uh, fr alabaster fragments of seated statues of Khufu that were found by George Reisner at Giza. And uh, another scholar uh, named Stadelman, he suggested that there are 50 or so statues of uh, Khufu that must have existed in his mortuary temple. Um, well, and his valley temple is, yes. is you know, under modern Giza now, so... Right, exactly. Nobody's going to be able to answer that question likely uh, anytime soon or ever. But wouldn't we have found fragments, some sort of fragments of these pieces, even though it's under a pizza hut? His well, valley temple? <laughs> maybe. I think the maybe. idea is it's like very deep. But there there were others as well. There were over 20 statues of Khufu that were um, uh, 
reused later by uh, Jed F. Ray. And we know that he reused the statues um, that, and that they weren't, you know, commissioned just by him because Khufu's names are still inscribed on them. Uh, and so there's a definite sign of reuse there. And if you go to the Palermo stone, you will find a description of two colossal statues of Khufu that were made of gold and copper. Uh, but obviously those did not survive, probably because they are made of, you know, valuable, easily reusable materials. And so this little ivory statuette of Khufu uh, becomes notable, you know, in so, the archaeological record. It's so funny that his pyramid's the biggest, but we have the tiniest little statuette. Exactly. No, I love it. I love it. That's part of the reason why I wanted to sort of feature this little statuette is because, yes, you think of Khufu, the 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 great builder of the pyramid the great pyramid of giza with these phenomenal you know cosmic you know religious powers and yet you have this itty bitty little ivory statue that is one of his only surviving images um, unless but, reiner uh, stadelman is correct and the sphinx belongs to khufu instead of Khafre. just putting there i had to get that in there had to get <laughs> so amber i'm looking at uh, image, uh, color image of the statuette right now, and there seems to be kind of some black schmutz on it. Yeah, I noticed that. Any idea what that is? It looks like a resin, a black bitumous um, tree, some sort of black varnish, which is, it's got petroleum products in it, it's got tree resin in it, um, and, you know, it cooks down and becomes this glossy black stuff, and it's often applied ritually. And that's, that's what it looks like. However, the statue that you have from Petrie, does it have that same black on it? It's a black and white image. So you can't quite see it. Well, and I have my, yeah, it's, I think it's it there. does. It does. Yeah. And I have yeah. my own personal images from when I was at the museum and I don't, I just don't know um, if it has any, like if at some point it was burnt or mm -hmm. um, how ivory ages and really lighting is everything with this piece. The the piece changes in its nature and look depending on what kind, is it lit from above? Then it looks like Zahi Hawass. <laughs> is oh, it lit wait. from- Speaking, speaking of Zahi, um, I, I should note, we didn't really necessarily discuss the date. We kind of, you know, jumped in with the assumption that it is fourth dynasty. Right. Um, and it does depict uh, Khufu. Um, uh, but Zahi Hawass has argued for a 26th dynasty date. 26th? So, yeah. Wow. He, he, he says that he doesn't think there was any activity at the temple complex of Osiris Hintiamintiu at Abydos during the fourth dynasty in spite of evidence that there actually was building activity there by Khufu uh, and that the temple may have actually been dedicated to the cult of Khufu. Um, and that publication was by uh, Busman. And I'll include that citation in the uh, uh, substack. For I mean, the, the dating episode. of this piece, sorry, the dating of this piece is really tough because it's not found at Giza in association with his mortuary funerary complex. It's from Abydos. And it's a tiny little thing and tiny little things can be heirlooms that can be passed down through the generations. I think the best argument that I've seen, and I'm sure we're gonna get into this more, Amber, is an art historical argument about exactly. hand positioning and other things that that suggest that this piece is later than the fourth dynasty, but I'll, I'll take your lead on these. Unless... Yeah, the, I mean, Egyptologists who are dating it to the fourth dynasty are using art historical arguments, right? So we don't necessarily have 
um, solid, more scientific uh, evidence to go on. And this is often the case uh, in Egyptology, particularly, as you say, with objects that um, are small and can float around. They can remain in in use or, you know, stored for a long period of time before they actually enter the archaeological record. So, you know, we and have then, to take the date with a, a grain of salt, I guess. And Amber, going back to the black on the body, I think that you're right that it's like a carbonization of some kind, probably not a ritual application of anything. Um, and that carbonization could be chemical. It could be an actual, it was near something burning. It was in a ritual location where there was burning, but I think that's a good way of, of looking at it. Okay. Well, it's very interesting. And I do want to talk about certain aspects uh, of, of the sort of the descriptive nature of the statue. But before we do that, I just want to read really quickly Petrie's uh, dis description of this statuette, because it is, shall we say, rife with confusion or sorry, conclusions and opinions that he is absolutely projecting onto this little little artifact. So Petrie uh, describes in his uh, excavation report Abydos II, um, you know, recounting the discovery of this little statuette. He says, quote, the idea which it conveys to us of the personality of Khufu agrees with his historical position. We see the energy, the commanding air, the indomitable will, and the firmability of the man who stamped forever the character of the Egyptian monarchy and outdid all time in the scale of his works. No other Egyptian king that we know resembled this head, and it stands apart in portraiture, though perhaps it may be compared to the energetic face of Justinian, the great builder and organizer. Wow, Petri. So, yeah, like, Petri, and for Petri, right? And for Petri, Justinian, the great Christian, I might of point course. out. Mm -hmm. Of course. But I just wanted to throw that in there because, you know, it is always fun, I think, to look back uh, and see how, you know, archaeologists, they can't help but infuse, you know, sort of their their own personality and their own opinions, you know, into their work. It's just human nature. But this one I thought was particularly a standout example of that. So um, so going back to the, the statuette itself, uh, I wanted to look at a couple of aspects of it. So for one, um, the red crown. And for, for those of you, um, you know, who aren't familiar with that, again, I advise you to sort of take a look at the photo. Um, but I want to ask you guys, why are we seeing the red crown here? I mean, the red crown is symbolic of the North and Khufu. We don't know the family origins of the fourth dynasty do we i didn't but, get into fourth dynasty genealogy for, well, I mean, for this but... <laughs> like sephir i mean presumably like sephiru and they're all building in the north but they would have seemed... shown themselves with both crowns so maybe well, we should have been assume a, matching piece a, a pair yeah and since and 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 i'd also like to dwell a little bit on the materiality on the elephant tusk that this is assumed to be okay, made of. I'm going to, I'm going to pause You're you getting right there because we are okay. going to get there. We're going to, we're going to okay. get into all of that. Um, but then but I'll say to... then yeah. I'll just say this then, then if there's a pair, it would make sense if this is from an elephant tusk, elephants have two tusks. Have and, ivory, right, than just but maybe one. my point, 
And if this is depicting him with the red crown, and if there was a pair, as Jordan suggests, depicting him with, with a white crown, and if this is made of ivory, which comes from an elephant, then two tusks, you know, a kind of pair, maybe I'm overthinking it, but I kind of like that symmetry, but that's an idea. Yeah, no, that's a, I, I like that idea. It's very cool. Um, but the well, basic idea I wanted to sort of point out to people is that the red crown has a geographic association. Mm -hmm. right and so it's interesting to see that that is is what he is wearing well and where's abydos middle egypt not you know, not, not i mean it's upper egypt it's in the south yeah, it's exactly it's, it's yeah in the south yeah and so i'm thinking of this that one statue of cossack emwi where he's wearing the white crown um so interesting parallel um so perhaps i don't know if you put the opposite if it's part of a pair um that was showing up in these in this temple or you know is it more do you send your northern statues to the south and your southern statues to the north or is some some play like that I well think every king is meant to wear both well, crowns right. and then and then in terms of close looking it looks like there was a notch in the top to stick something in like there's a place to put in something that was of a different material maybe gold maybe maybe something else but there's there's a clear notch that where 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 something else maybe it's a broken part of the ivory it's possible um i find it extraordinary that such famous well-known pieces are the least studied we don't know what kind of ivory it is we don't know what that black stuff is we don't know if it was covered with paint there's there's a whole lot that we that we don't know about this piece yeah agreed and I would also say too about the red crown because again of the size and we're not exactly sure of um, the function of this sculpture or this statuette which we will talk about uh, here in a bit but if it was say a, supposed to be a small personal votive you know maybe they had one with the crown of lower Egypt some with the crown of upper he Egypt and though like you picked what you wanted like maybe what you felt you most identified with was it lower Egypt was it upper Egypt I don't know, just throwing ideas out there. Um, I don't think you're going to have an ivory votive. I think ivory elephant tusk, this, I mean, it's a small piece, yes, but it's a goddamn elephant, which means this is, though small, quite mighty. And I think I would put this more in the vein of a of a cult object at that's this temple site. Hawass then, because that's what Hawass thinks. It's like this votive Okay. Well, and I think then, even other Egyptologists as well, like the, the disagreement, I think, is really on the um, dating. But as far as use, yeah, I think people have have discussed or brought up the idea of a votive. But we'll, we'll get more into that. But let's let's look at the rest of his dress for now, which is not much. So he's naked from the waist up and um, just holding the flail. And so I was going to, you know, bring that up as well, you know, for for people that may not you know, be familiar with uh, ancient Egyptian kingship, you know, why sort of this naked uh, torso and why the flail? His manly virility is on display with his, um, I think Lynn Mescal always has his nice, you know, triangular physique. The, the king's always shown, you know, at the fittest. And so part of that is being shown and in an activity, active form. So part of that is, you know, being in a kilt where he could have moved. To me, the most interesting thing is he's not like in a headset garb, which I feel like would have been more appropriate thinking of near contemporaneous statues at this time that we have um, statue statuettes at this time, thinking of Snefru, Djoser, 
Casa Camuy. They're always in their little short headset, headset, little wrapped garment. Um, well, that's so interesting. It's interesting to kind of think about him in, you know, a more, what we will later, you know, associate with the king in a more active stance. Well, and I wonder, going along with Kara's suggestion about it playing more of a cult kind of function, you know, in the temple, maybe it actually had clothes. Maybe there was a wrap that went around. Um, That's a very good little point. statuette. Yeah. You can change it. Yeah. I mean, if I'm going to take some Comparanda, it's later, two two reigns later, but Khafre's seated statue shows him with it. that, yeah. his series of, of mm-hmm. diorite or and north the site nice with the g statues he's he's got a naked chest and he's wearing this kilt very low slung very low set on the waist um lower than this one and and his hand position in the coffre series of statues is very different one hand is resting on the thigh and the other is fisted and holding that whatever that royal handkerchief business or papyrus or whatever the hell it yes, is Yes, i thought that that was very interesting here uh khufu he has uh, an open palm mm-hmm. so it, it, do we know of any significance for that particular gesture it's usually i mean later it's isn't it usually women who have the flat hand and men always have the fisted with they're holding their little handkerchief or whatever you want to call it to see you you only need one fisted hand and Kafre has one fisted hand and one flat hand. So one flat hand on the thigh and the man putting hands flat on the thigh. That's okay. That's something you might see even in a Ramesid coffin. Kafre is, is his one hand present there? On the, on other statues in the series, it is. Oh, you're right. So that, that hand is flat on the just thigh. Just so you know, everyone, we're rapidly Googling here, looking for... Yeah, we're all yeah, looking, just looking for looking other images. Around but this is part of close looking, you know, you, you look at a piece and then you're like, okay, what else is going on? And so what other way, pieces I, can I look at? To add further, if you haven't noticed, I'm, I think it's, it's older. Um, I think it fits in a good, you know, transitional phase between, you know, third dynasty, early third dynasty statues that we have second and third into later fourth. Um, but do like we do we maybe agree then like for sure old kingdom though like not I don't agree I don't necessarily agree okay do you want to hear my well rationale? because the the right arm holding that flail I don't think you get that until the middle kingdom and I need to check that's a huge point I mean the, the first time that you see an an in a king's hand one arm holding a flail like that. I'm I'm not sure, and I I just emailed Brandon. Don't we, don't we see because that with, he's working on this? So I, I want to know. Don't we see that know. with the, the image that uh, Jordan <clears throat> brought up about whenever they're in that Hebsed garment? Don't we see a flail? Sometimes, sometimes it's, their hands are like inside the garment. Mm-hmm. Um, my yeah, Joser, he's got. I mean, um, um, Narmer on the Narmer palette is holding a flail. I'm looking at yeah, it but now. it's three, but that's not 3D. Yes. I mean, oh no, Joser does have okay, I take it back, but he's got the arm, the right arm crossed, but he's not holding anything. That we have left. It could have mm-hmm. something have been inserted. And he's holding the flail on his hepsed seams and his under. Yeah, he is. He is, he is. Yeah, my no, thing this, is this is great. I like as you say, you see what close looking can do, right? Mm-hmm. All of a sudden these details, these questions come out at you. Like, wait a minute, what is this about? 
And what's funny too is. Yeah, I'm showing the Joser right now. And he's just got a fisted hand on his chest and that's it. That's it. Um, is there a hole in there to hold a flail? I'd need to get up close to see if that kind of thing could be put in there. That would be pretty cool. But the other hand is flat mm -hmm. on the on the body. So what do we think yeah. about the lack of beard? But but wait, can we go back, Jordan? I like your point that this arm style, this way of holding the hands and the arms, works really well with a hebset garment rather than a naked chest kind of look in the old kingdom. So the, that's incongruous, perhaps. But anyway, sorry, what were you going to say? I was saying the lack of beard is also a very third dynasty vibe. Yeah, I think that's a, the statues that's a great we have of Cossack Emwe. The statues Snefru never has a beard. The Joser Sir Dob statue does. It has a big beard, like a big beard. beard. Yeah. But then otherwise, in and we could argue that the Sir Dob Ka statue is doing something different here, and that beards are for gods at this, or you know. Um, but you don't see beards really come into royal statues always until Jedefra, which is Khufu's. Uh, Jedefra, I think, is Khufu's brother. Yeah. yeah. Oh, brother. But but then the medium of ivory might not have allowed a beard. Yeah, could easily break off. Yeah. Or yeah, yeah. Do you, it would have been attached, but then did you have enough ivory to do it? I mean, it's underneath the neck. You should have. You should have. But. Well, and unfortunately, we don't have any photos where we could actually look and see, like, does it look as if something has been broken off or or not? And we do know that the head has gone through some trauma, um, being completely knocked from the statuette at one point. So those are all great points, I think. Um, but and, and looking at it again, because we're close looking, right? Looking yeah. at what I thought was a notch on the top of the head, looking at Petrie's photos from the side. That seems to be a split in the ivory, a natural yeah. split. So oh, I don't okay. think that there was an emplacement for anything there. I think that it's broken off and you can see where the rest of the crown is actually broken right off. There. So yeah, yeah, so a result of the damage. Okay. Yeah, you can see the split. And so I take that back as well. And um, yeah, ivory is a hard material to, you know, having personally not had a lot of <laughs> experience with ivory, you know, it, it, it's not, it's neither wood, it's neither stone, obviously it's bone. And I think a lot of us, how it cracks and shows how to work with it, it's harder to, um, for me at least, like understand its exact composition as, yeah, a, so as let's, a material. Yeah, let's get into that now. Let's talk about the significance of ivory as the material for the statuette, um, how that maybe plays into its small size. And ivory is really things. valuable. Mm -hmm. Right, you have to go hunt a elephant or a rhino um, and kill it and take its horns or tusks. It's obviously a very valuable piece. You're not. We have images much later on of them importing ivory from the south. Um, I don't know if there would have been elephants still extant at this time, but maybe very few. If 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 uh, possible, but yeah, a very high luxury good that only the king had access to essentially. And the reason it's small is because you're working with the test. So it can't be, you know, a giant statue that you could make of stone. Right. So most people would see this as a, a, a itty bitty little ivory statuette, but Kara looks at it and she sees Money. this evocation <laughs> of power, right, of the king. And the fact that this is a, a small thing doesn't mean that it doesn't have impact or a uh, huge significance to 
somebody at the time looking at it and seeing that. And it's coming from a an animal, you know, that's very powerful. And so, you know, in a way, like by carving the king out of its horn, you're taking on the properties of this, you know, very large, majestic um, beast, you know. Yeah, Has I anyone done a dissertation oh, yeah. on ivory where you see its distribution and use through time in Egypt? That would be super interesting. So then you're, we would be able to look at such a dissertation and look at dated objects, mm -hmm. obviously dated art historically, maybe according to archaeological context. But we all know sitting here that the Middle Kingdom magic wands that are so made out of a hippo of, tusk, yeah. right? With that complete mm -hmm. tusk-like shape. And there are, you know, I don't know if five or six of those that I can think of off the top of my head. And, and those must have been held in, in uh, very high elite uh, ownership in some way. But I don't know of a lot of new kingdom ivory objects compared to middle kingdom that I can just think of off the top of my head, maybe some cosmetic spoons, um, mm -hmm. other type it's objects. You, you don't have the iconic objects made of ivory in the new kingdom the way can, perhaps you do in the middle. So you could make all kinds of arguments. Yeah, those clappers from Brooklyn, but then you're dating those art historically, aren't you? But bringing um, it back to older time periods to work with my argument, all the pre-dynastic labels are ivory. Um, there's that And those could be statue. hippo ivory. We've talked about the hippo yeah. shape, right? And those tiny labels have like a cross section of a hippo tooth, a length cross section that could be that shape. Um, um, yeah, that one early statue of the king of a king that we have is also a statue in ivory. I think the first figure, it's the earliest statuette of the king in the round. Right. You know, from the British right. Museum, the one I'm talking about. Beardless King Dynasty one, maybe like a den or a jet or, a jet or something exactly. like that. But to but I, you know, it's so interesting that there's more ivory from earlier in Egypt, even though we have less stuff from earlier in Egypt. And we have more stuff from later, but there's arguably less ivory because the elephant is going extinct because this is what complex societies and kingships do. They hoard resources, they control, and they make these, these things go extinct. So th this ivory, I see it and I see something that's like solid gold, but better, um, more rare, more precious. And well, thus I assign it. Yeah, gold then I assign it to a cult down. image. But the ivory itself could potentially help us date it. And my God, it we could carbon-14 this thing and we could, it's an organic material and we could get the date of when the elephant mm. was felled, when the elephant lived. And that would, that would help us a whole lot. Um, yeah, no, I really like this discussion of ivory as uh, a material that sort of signifies power, reach, um, and the ability to create, as Kara would point out, something beautiful right? Um, out of, um, say, hunting an elephant or a hippo or whatever the origins of this ivory might be. Um, but I also wanted to sort of bring up the point that Kara uh, talks about in The Good Kings, which is that, um, Kara, you think that Khufu intentionally limited the production of his personal image. Um, and, you know, what are your thoughts on that? And what are you basing that off of? There, there's so little preserved um these statues were used by jed efra um i didn't look into extensively and that's super interesting and we all know how much i love reuse but 
but there's not, you have images of him in two dimensions. There's a whole lot of reliefs reused at Licht, um, for example. So it's not like his, his image isn't there at all, but, but he's, I would argue that compared to Menkaure and Kafre before him, that he has less of it. There's the temples get bigger, the smaller the pyramids get. And there's more of a statue cult, arguably, as the, the building continues. And so this idea of like, look at Casa Kemwi of the second dynasty, look at Djoser of the third, you don't see a massive amount of statue cults, at least that we have preserved. I like this idea that the king's person, which in certain texts, like you touch the king's robe and I don't remember which text it is, but you're like struck by the power, the divinity of that king, right? That the his body- one where he hits you with- That's right. He gets tripped over the, the staff and it's like- <laughs> That's Westcar, right? Um, yes. Yeah, I think we, yeah. we can check. I'm sorry. And then we're, we'll all, we all have um, panic in our eyes. It's really like, is that Westcar? Oh my God, there's just too much to know in Egyptology, I swear to God, but um, to the gods. But th this idea of a limited access to one's person in three-dimensional or two-dimensional imagery, I think is important. We Egyptologists or Americans or modern people think that the more images you have of yourself, the more powerful you are. Whereas limiting that imagery is is in some ways power in and of itself that people shouldn't and don't get access to that. So uh, if the Sphinx is his, as Reiner Stadelmann suggests, and as I actually, I do agree with that, mm -hmm. then, you know, he's there, his image is lording over the Giza plateau in a very overt way. So does that go against everything I've said? I mean, you know, in a way, it it's just like means he went that for quality, quality over quantity, unlike Ramses, right? So the different yeah. strategies of it's true. Why do you need a bunch of statues if you have, you have the statue that yeah. everybody can see? But and it's a limiting of his. <laughs> it's a limiting of his person in the company of other elites he's sacralizing himself and setting himself apart yeah yeah he's not as available yeah no i think this is a great uh this is a great point to make in the discussion and i was so i was kind of thinking going back to the idea of what the possible function of this statuette might have been um if it does have more of a, a cult function then that sort of puts it in a completely different use context and if you think of it as a personal votive um, and so when I first looked at it, you know, looking at these, um, suggestions, you know, by, um, other scholars and such that maybe it was a votive. I mean, if it was like, let's theorize here. Um, and Khufu did limit his image in one way or another, and you have this very valuable material that this statuette is made out of. Could it have then been indicative of like, connection you know uh proximity to the king social status um i don't know maybe something similar to like a modern military challenge coin you know where it shows like hey you have had an interaction right with this person of power i don't I know thoughts. too if it's related in some way to like endowments given to the temple of abydos at henti mentiu that um I'm only thinking of this because I've been reading a lot of things about medieval queens and like all they do is endow <laughs> churches and priories and all these things and give them lots of little gifts and stuff. So, um, you know, if he endows the temple 
at Abidos there with lands or, you know, tax exemptions or things like this. And then part of it is he offers, you know, a statue of him is also installed there to also kind of get part of this Osiris Hentimentiu juju offerings to link himself up with the um up with the the cult there. I, I have two issues with it necessarily being associated with Khufu, even though we know it's the text names him as that and the face, you know, this is the iconic image of Khufu. But one, the the small size is an heirloomable type thing. So, you know, it could be it could be older. And number two, it's coming from a place that had a cult associated with the king. And here's the other problem is that these kings don't just have production during their lives and then it's over. Some kings of great importance and some elites of great importance, like Amenhotep son of Hapu or, or, some, or somebody else, they, they have these long lasting cults that kings, other later kings would have supported. So something like this could easily have been a gift from a later king to the cult site dedicated to Khufu to show that king's pious connection to Khufu and, and make his political um, name known and to show the elites, oh, I got it from the hippo the, or the elephant hunt that we were all on. I'm gonna have this make, made into a statue. Everyone look at my statue. All the elites are like, oh my God, my king, you're so awesome. And then I'm gonna give it to Abidos. Everyone see it there. And it is a, it could have been something like that, kind of like a, a gift showing the elite's pious well, connection. I mean, we'll never know unless I, we carbon date it. <laughs> I think I was talking to Jeff about this as well, because I figured he would have an opinion. Um, and he mentioned the fact that in the archeological material, that area of the temple seemed to have been an area where goods were being cached from all different times, kind of like the Hierapolis um site so it could have been a time when they were yeah like you said heirlooms or kind of antiques that were being either saved or all being donated and i'm thinking too of you know this is a known practice at the time with like snefru's the stuff we found in in the step pyramid right he has stuff from first and second dynasties pottery with older kings names on them so maybe this is a common practice at the time that it is donated later on, um, even possibly yeah, made later on in, in reverence of Khufu. Yeah, no, I think this all sort of goes into what I wanted to make sort of my final point here um, with this. But, little oh, oh, yes, go ahead. Go, this go is ahead. interesting if we're arguing, okay, if we're arguing for a middle kingdom date, maybe because of its ivory and other things, Khufu's memory in the Middle Kingdom isn't very good. Mm, that's a good point. Arguably, right? But he's still a king. They yeah. still write stories about him. Bad he's stories. Still, <laughs> he's that cipher for the megalomaniacal king gone too far. And yet, what do the tales in Westcar, for example, tell us that the king can be checked? The mm. king can be checked by the magician and his elites who say, oh no, my lord, we can't do this. And does the king say, cut the prisoner's head off anyway? He doesn't. He can't. He's He's been made a part of that larger social context. And so it's kind of, Khufu is kind of a picture of a king controlled, tamed, domesticated, if you like, 
compared to like a first dynasty king who can murder as many of his courtiers as he wants to serve him in the next life. Khufu is, he can't do these things anymore. And that's made explicit in that text. So you, you want to remember him for that reason. And to go back well, to maybe him being so sacralized, it's like the office of kingship has become so like rigid um, yeah. in a sense, yeah. Well, and I would point out that ancient Egyptians too, they were sort of known for taking these things from their world um, that may have been perceived as uh, dangerous or not friendly, and yet bringing them to themselves and um, asking for their help, you know, their protection, their power, you know, to be employed in their favor. So that wouldn't necessarily, um, I mean, that would fit with what Kara was talking about there about you know, having, you know, something that represents a, a king that has, whose power has been checked and that is in, in control. I would say Seth is a case in point. There's temples dedicated to Seth in, in the middle kingdom, arguably, certainly in the new kingdom that are dedicated to that great power to kill Apophis in the sixth hour of night. And, and that, that power is, um, sought after worshiped connected with you got to be careful with it but it's it's something that people are drawn to nonetheless so yeah the chaotic power of seth could be a good thing if it were used right for good as in that kind of thing a temple of seth is arguably a place where you unleash that power but you also tame that power at the same time you propitiate it you soften it and you could argue that this cult of the king is you're you're allowing the king to be a a megalomaniacal bastard in his bastard is perhaps the wrong word a megalomaniacal asshole in his temple space and then you pull him back and you domesticate him and tame him and that's part of the cult ritual of certain gods and goddesses right the goddess who can go off and gobble up humanity and you must propitiate her but that power to do so is absolutely necessary and a part of keeping the system going. So this, this mythology of a difficult king doesn't mean you've thrown him out. It means that you're, you're working with that ambivalence of, is he good for you? Is he not good for you? It's that ambivalence of people working with an authoritarian power over their lives. Yeah. Well, this brings up my final point. Um, This whole discussion that we've been having here, um, and that it is that it is always preferable, right, as Egyptologists to have primary documents written by ancient Egyptians themselves um, to back up analysis. But most of the time, uh, we have to make strong circumstantial arguments based on incomplete evidence and then combine that with any insights and observations that you can get from years of study and research and immersion in all of this ancient evidence that we do have surviving. So I'm sure there are a lot of people who aren't Egyptologists or aren't art historians who sort of listen to this whole discussion and are like, yeah, okay, so how can we really know what messages were meant to be conveyed um, by an ancient artifact like this little Khufu statuette? Thoughts? I mean, I'll start by saying that there is no pure and true history. It doesn't exist. And everything that we write is a reflection of our own context, our own times, and our own feelings about power. So what Petrie 
wrote is very different from what we would write. And we have to expect that. That's fine. That doesn't mean that we can't try to find out how people grappled and worked with kingship. I think we can. And the more dissenting voices, the more ambivalence in a sense you get, maybe the closer you can get to the actual story. And I mean, I think my my final point with this is there's so many unknowns, but so much of it could be solved by moving beyond a close art historical looking into a scientific analysis. Because if we analyze the black material, is it soot or is it a resinous material applied? If we analyze the the carbon in this elephant husk, what's the date? We'll know a whole well, immediately. We'll know if this is a Khufu that lasted for a millennium after his existence to be worshipped in a temple space. We'll, we'll be able to create more discussions. And then the, the scientific analysis of the use of ivory and whether there are a whole lot of elephants left at this time, how it will it will speak to how rare this piece is when we know how old it is. And, and then you could measure the tusk and understand how large the elephant was. There's all kinds of things that you can apply to this. They're all circumstantial arguments, but they would add significantly to the understanding of the, the piece itself and thereby to the statue program of the kings or powerful people who made it. Totally agree. And I think the other thing that always keeps it exciting is that, you know, next week something could be uncovered a new piece of papyri or something like this that could help clarify any of these matters further, right? Like thinking the Wadi al-Jarft papyri kind of opened up our understanding of part of the, you know, um, logistics chain of procurement of this limestone for the building of the pyramid, all of Mark Lehner's work at the, um, you know, uh, workman's site, workman's village for, for the pyramid site. So I think just with further excavation, you know, maybe we will dig up under that Pizza Hut one day and find some statues of Khufu. So I think that's what's exciting about this is there's always a debate to be had. Um, and we always are finding new new evidence, new um, new ways of looking at things. So that's that's an excellent point. And and I would also add to that um, the idea of kind of what Kara said, where sort of the lens that we use changes, like just think of reuse, mm -hmm. you know, from the beginning of Kara's career, you know, she viewed um, certain, you know, evidence about funerary material culture one way. And then she starts to look at the, the evidence with um, different eyes, so to speak, and all of a sudden, there's a whole new area of discussion and a whole new perspective as to exactly what's going on with these objects. And this piece too could be reused. We don't know. <laughs> this too could be reused. Reuse of three-dimensional objects made of one material is a reductive pursuit. So you're removing the evidence of, of any sort of reuse. And I, you know, you, you could do some close looking. There's not a whole lot you can do with an ivory piece, but ivory is, is rare and reuse is always possible. I'm not going to push that narrative for this. Right. Um, I don't think so, but, but all kinds of things are possible. Could, could be, could be. <laughs> but I, coming from the reuse specialist, I think that that is the perfect note to end on. And so um, thanks for joining us for this uh, special 
series, our first episode of this special series, uh, Artifact Stories. And we'll see you next time on Afterlives of Ancient Egypt. Bye. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thank you to our listeners for your support, and please subscribe. It's a big deal with all the platforms, so subscribe. If you enjoyed the show, share it with all your friends, and most importantly, leave us a five-star review. It really helps with all those aforementioned platforms. Send all those ancient world questions and topic suggestions for future episodes to karakuni at gmail.com. We read them all. You can find info on all my books, articles, and upcoming lectures on my website. Just head to karakuniegyptologist.com. Amber puts all that together. Oh my God, thank you, Amber. Join our vibrant and subversive online community at patreon.com slash afterlives and get access to our private Discord server where Jordan and I can connect with our listeners far, far away from all those toxic social media spaces. And do not forget to check out our Substack Ancient Now at ancientnow.substack.com, where we share perspectives on all that history and archaeology news every week and continue the conversations that happen after the podcast mic is turned off. You can find me on Facebook at Karakuni Egyptologist and on Twitter and Instagram at Karakuni. 
Thanks to the team at Patina Productions for this podcast, which I must point out is wholly separate from my academic work at UCLA. See you next time on Afterlives of Ancient Egypt.